apparently this is a, a point of contention among people who direct Macbeth. Uh, what do you do about the third murderer? Yeah, I had that. I had that question reading it. It felt like right. a, a dangling thread. Like, who is this? Why is this important that a third murderer had shown up? Unclear. Yeah. There's the delightful interpretation that you guys introduced me to, which I don't think I'd ever heard before, about maybe this is an incomplete play and there were other bits of it. The first folio was lost. I forget all the details of that. Yeah. Or as a person who wants to reify Shakespeare uh, and make him into something you couldn't possibly have been, I, I want him to have left us that just so that hundreds of directors and <laughs> actors through the generations would be like, what do we do about this? What does it mean? Welcome, friends, to episode 218 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Joel Cohen's 2021 film, The Tragedy of Macbeth. And joining us this week in Burnham Wood is Michael DeLuca. Michael is the publisher of Reckoning, a journal of creative writing on environmental justice. Also a writer himself, his short fiction has appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Apex, Mythic Delirium, and more. His novella Night Roll was released in October of 2020. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, so uh, I I don't know you very well, but I met you through Reckoning because I have a story that is out in Reckoning issue number six. Um, and I would love it if you could talk to our listeners a little bit briefly here at the beginning about what Reckoning is as a magazine. Reckoning is a journal of creative writing on environmental justice. That's the summary. People don't always know what environmental justice is, although these days I think it gets more and more familiar. Uh, when I started Reckoning in 2016, I was afraid there weren't going to be enough submissions, that not enough people would be into this topic. But it, the issues of concern there just keep growing, of course. Uh, and we're having no trouble with submissions. There's more every issue, so uh, that's great. No, no. To sum it up, environmental justice is the concept that the people responsible for the degradation of our natural world are not the people who are m most affected by it, uh, and attempting to reconcile those two things. So I live in uh, southeastern Michigan, in between the city of Flint and the city of Detroit, uh, and that was part of what influenced me as I was coming up with the idea for this. I mean, uh, I'm sure you've all heard about mm -hmm. the Flint water crisis, lead in the pipes. Sadly. Uh, Detroit was having some similar stuff, um, water shutoffs during the pandemic. Uh, so the time seemed ripe 2016, you know, uh, Trump was about to come into office. So I was motivated to do something. I just sort of felt helpless, like I had done all this, all the things that, you expect a green hippie to do. I've got solar panels and an electric car and I garden and all this, you know, and it just didn't feel like enough. Uh, so hence reckoning. And it's been great. Um, and uh, your story, Luke, is awesome. Uh, it isn't out yet on the website, but I look forward to it appearing because I'm looking forward to hearing people react because I, I really enjoy it. 
Thanks. Yeah, the, the title of that one is "What Good Is a Sad Backhoe?" and um, it is. Uh, yeah, it's if you want to get the ebook, I think they can get that now uh, yes, on, on, right. on the website. But the physical copy will be coming out mid year, and then uh, my story is supposed to appear, I think, in October, if I remember correctly. That sounds right. Yes, towards <laughs> the end of the issue. I apologize about that, but you put uh, really it's all right. No, it's good. I'm, I, I'd be a closer, right? Right. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, now we're talking about Shakespeare. That's what we got you on here for. Uh, you mentioned that you have some experience with Shakespeare, and particularly Macbeth, so I'd love to hear about that. Like, what is what is your track history with Macbeth? Yeah, so I read it first in high school. I got sufficiently into Shakespeare, into the intellectual challenge of it. Uh, you guys were talking about this in the previous episode about learning to get your head around the language. Uh, and it really is like, it's a journey into a place where you can understand him. And then once you're there, it's a lot easier and it's sort of very tempting to go read another play because now you have the chops, you've polished those up. Uh, and if you forget and go away from Shakespeare for a while, you've got to do the work again. (laughs) Uh, so I ended up taking two semesters of Shakespeare in college uh, I saw Macbeth performed in London. Uh, wow. My future wife uh, did her semester abroad there. It was a very stripped down production. Everyone wore black pretty much. The set was black. There were swords. There were crowns. And I think that was it for props, really. Uh, she had bloody hands, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, it, the, but Macbeth was Rufus Sewell, who I am a fan of. Wow, and, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. I, I'm super jealous. I, I think I even mentioned on our last episode. I I, I really want to see this performed like in a, in a theater now. Yeah, I'd love that. Uh, so you spoke about like, how you did listen to our last episode, and I'm a little nervous because, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a Shakespeare expert, and and like you were talking about, it was my first time reading it in a long time, and I there was definitely a, a, a curve of me being able to even understand what was going on. Um, but you're right on because I watching this movie. I was so glad we went through the process of reading it because I was so ready to just appreciate the film for what it was and not have that stumbling block of figuring out what they're talking about. Um, I did turn on subtitles so that I could follow the language, um, that, and that helped me. Um, but and then it, you know, and, and I could still feel myself evolving because I was like getting even more out of the the words. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if you had the similar similar experience, James. But uh, yeah, all that is to say, you're you're right on with that, and uh, you listened to our last episode. So I'm hoping that we didn't we didn't get anything too wrong. Yeah, hopefully we didn't butcher it. <laughs> I definitely want to echo what you're saying. This idea that I sat down, sort of expecting expectations are funny, right? Like I sat down thinking we're getting a a Cohen. Joel Cohen specifically adaptation and I wonder if he's going to modernize it make the dialogue a little easier to digest but when I sat down and started watching it he didn't and yeah. it is from the page and that that was an adjustment period even in this film the first like five minutes or so I was like this is going to be an undertaking this is a film that like requires like a certain level of concentration and and like really digging into it which of course you want to do with every film but I realized very quickly, five minutes in, 10 minutes in, that it being performed helps immensely in being able to follow what's happening. The 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 way that the actors are like articulating their face and, and like really, really performing and tend, like showing you with their face what's going on makes it a lot easier to follow. And midway through the movie, I didn't even think about the fact that they were speaking in, in this sort of language that they were. Yeah. 
I totally agree. I mean, the, the premise of your podcast, is the book or the film better? This is a really hard question yeah. to take up with Shakespeare because- It really is. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, the stage is expected there. Um, yeah, we don't, we, this is our first like major play we've done. So our form breaks a little bit here, admittedly. <laughs> uh, mm. Normally we're doing novels, <laughs> um, which doesn't have that sort of intermediary. Yeah, because this is this is intended to be viewed. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the end. Um, it's it's kind of a, a, f- a futile endeavor, and and we can talk about that when we when we make our picks. Um, but yeah, what was your experience like uh, watching the tragedy of Macbeth? Had you seen it before? Uh, you're watching it for this podcast, or uh, or was this your first time watching it? Uh. I watched it twice in short order, once before and once after you invited me to do this. It's wonderful. Uh, it reminded me of that Rufus Sewell production I saw because th- it, it's not as stripped down. There are sets, there's a castle, but mm-hmm. the the mist that's constant uh, sort of closes everything in and it it feels like it's a stage yeah. a lot of the time. I think purposely so also, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it's this the fog creates that illusion that you would get in a theater where they have the backdrop and the fog is to, yeah. you know, give that sort of believability to it. And and what an homage it was in that way. I gather that he's making references to all these previous productions of Macbeth. I read this thing in the LA Times, a lengthy review from a, someone who is far more familiar with stage productions of Macbeth than I will ever be. Uh and and the filmed versions, like apparently there's an Orson Welles version that he's specifically calling back, and I can't remember the all the details. But hmm. uh, well, I have a feeling we're going to watch some of them <laughs> in the future because we we tend to do that in our bonus episodes on Patreon. Uh, so we'll awesome. probably be watching some more Macbeth in, in our future. Um, yeah, that's really interesting, and I, and I totally agree with what you guys are saying. I think there was a lot of choices made to deliberately evoke the stage, right? Like they, there was not an attempt to create a historic drama that where people are just happened to be speaking like Shakespearean times. And instead they said, no, we're leaning into, this is a production. This is drama. There's not a lot of like background characters. Uh, There's like, you don't see like armies really at all in this. It's, it's more, it's mostly just speaking roles, maybe a couple here or there. um, And, the actors are front and center. The uh, aspect ratio, 4-3, uh, uh, you know, it's black and white. There's a lot of stripped down things that have happened that, to me, drove my focus closer and closer to the performance. Uh, and that's what I assume the the uh, uh, focus was and, and, the, and the purpose of doing that. Uh, but I'm definitely curious to know if there's any other theories about why they chose to go black and white in 4-3 ratio. Oh, I have so many. So I'm going to get on my soapbox and talk about something that I've talked about many times. In film, one of the most revolutionary periods was the German Expressionist period. Films like that you study in, in History of Cinema, the, those types of courses like Doctor Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, some of these early German expressionist films, it's really the the template of what would become like a lot of modern horror and noir and and many of these aspects like start to start to show up over and over again. And some of those things are elongated architecture, which you get a ton of that in this movie. High contrast, super high contrast between your the white and the black in this film. And um, so that was my f- the first thing that hit me it was just like I, I was expecting it to be as I realized it was going to be very theatrical, very stage-like, uh, 
I thought it was going to be a lot of like medium shots and full shots and just like showing us the performances, but it showed off this weird space in a way that I wasn't expecting in a way that, that brought back the idea of like, they have these architecture pieces where the, the, the walls are crooked and the way that the lighting comes through can be unnatural at times. And the, the edges on a lot of the lighting is too sharp. The contrast between the the line of where because it it can't happen like that naturally there's there's a flood like a sort of bloom that comes from lighting normally and uh i was just geeking out about how this is one of the most visually striking movies i've seen definitely this year maybe the last five years and beyond um and i love that with that the the cohen's and specifically in this case joel cohen they're known for their noir they're known they're they're one of their first early successes was blood simple Noir and and kind of neo noir. We talked about it with uh, with No Country for Old Men. This they they're taking the noir, they're taking the western, they're blending these things together, and to see this whole f- full circle movement here, where Joel Cohen is now making like a Macbeth adaptation inspired by what would inspire film noir being German expressionism and and the ways that it was just like I was geeking out about like the film history within this and. Um, you know, a lot of it, we talk about it in, in, in many horror movies, like Dutch angles to your shots and just this, this sense of, especially the fog, like all of these, all of these elements, uh, it feels like he took a, a Macbeth adaptation and took all the tools that he's been developing throughout his career to, to get, deliver this like really unique film that, that I don't know anyone else could have per- delivered on in the same way. You Are you guys planning to watch or have you already watched the... Um the Macbeth that was out a few years ago starring Fassbender. We're going to. We're going okay. to on well, Patreon, but we have not watched it yet. I won't spoil it with my opinion of that or try and compare. It's <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. I mean, you can give us a little taste maybe. I bailed out of that Fassbender version after about half an hour. Oh, wow. interesting. Uh, because it was very heavy. And, and Macbeth is absolutely a horror story. And as you were talking about in your previous episode, you know, high body count, um, no one goes into Macbeth expecting to be cheered. Uh, I mean, not that I don't find it funny. The the Porter's speech is always entertaining, no yeah. matter how many times <laughs> I hear it. Particularly good in this adaptation, too. Very, very funny performance by, uh, I think, Stephen Root. Uh, he's great. Anyway, the Fastbender version, I guess just it felt plotting. It felt dense, deliberately trying to hit you over the head with that the sense of menace, uh, and I couldn't take it, whereas this felt very poised and uh, all the choices seemed deliberate, you know, and, mm. and I was completely sucked in and wanted to watch it again. We'll, we will have to uh, be thinking about that when we watch that one, because I'm sure we're going to, uh, so it'll depend on our appetite maybe for the for the overbearing <laughs> tone of, of that film. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, do we want to get into some background information on the movie, James? So in terms of choices that were made. I found some some interviews and I read some things that Joel Cohen spoke about. One of the things that I already talked about that I'll call back to is that sort of I talked about that unnatural edge to a lot of the lighting. Like there it would be shooting through like a skylight or or through like like an archway or something like that. It's mm-hmm. very sharp. Um it looked unnatural to me and I I was like what what the 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 black on this film is so rich. It's such a pure black. And I'm trying to figure out how they're how they're filming this with the lighting being so because the some of the lighting was so harsh, you can't just get that sort of black without having some residual light in your in it your was almost basically. a perfect black. Um because I have an OLED um and it 
it, this is a perfect movie, if anyone out there has an OLED, to show off what makes OLED different, I think. It's because the black levels are so rich and black, yeah. Because what what normally what, what a TV will do is they'll take all those all those different pixels. They artificially yeah. create black by shooting light through all the colors at the same time. And it looks kind of gray. Yep. And the best the best versions of that are able to get like somewhere close, but the OLEDs are true black. Like they're they just turn your screen black in that place. Mm-hmm. Turn it off basically. <laughs> turn the pixels off. Yeah. Yeah. I found out within the set design that a lot of times they were actually painting black on the spots where it was supposed to be black as well so like even if the light did hit it that harsh edge was because that's the edge of a paint wow so it's not just shadow it's it's painted black (laughs) exactly so they're recreating the shadows and then it made for such a weird look and i loved it so much um that's one really fun thing that i found some of the background this was shot uh in 36 days which was the shortest shooting joel cohen had ever done uh, and most of it was completed several months after the start of COVID-19. After the start. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So that had to be complicated. And that's also notable because this entire movie, other than one shot at the very end of the movie, that's sort of a single exterior. Uh, and it's more of an element than the whole shot. Everything is on a soundstage. This entire film was was created on a soundstage. You know, during the pandemic, that like one location, small amount of crew, small amount of actors, things like that would be important. And just thinking of, of creating this in a soundstage and the set design and, and everything that they created, it's, it's an immense undertaking. And then they shot it in 36 days. And it's, like I said, one of the most striking things I've ever seen. And so the way that he's deciding to have it all be in a, a soundstage gives it what he says. It gives it an untethered from reality feel. Agreed. Because it makes it feel like it doesn't take place in our world. And it, and it feels like the myth of, of Macbeth and, and the, what the story has become, it's outside of anything that could have ever happened. And it's, it's almost like in a vacuum. So I thought that was really interesting to hear him talk about like that reasoning. Apparently, all the costuming and the sets, everything in the film that you see are, is almost all black and white. Oh, so in order to like really play up that contrast, costuming, like walls, everything is either black or white. That other had, than I, I would love to see some actual color photography photos. of the yeah. sets because that would be interesting. Yeah, for sure. Uh, apparently, there are a few dresses worn by Francis McDormand that were that were colorful, but but other than that, pretty much everything's very black and white. Huh? Clever. I would like to talk about how this possibly impacted my impression of the play. Uh, if I mean, if it, is it time for that? Can I ramble? Sure. So yeah, the sense of isolation and specificity and the the lack of decoration, you know, the lack of the unnecessary. Uh, it feels like a stage. It also, to me, uh, I think it was calling me back to Greek tragedy. I don't know if you guys have read much of that, but Greek tragedy is even more stripped down. You know, they've got robes and masks and that's it. And they're on a stone stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's the convention of the Greek chorus, where you get a scene and then the Greek chorus comes in and comments. And I was very aware in this movie how the witches function as a Greek chorus in a way that I have never been before having seen and read this play many times. Uh, and I think that's partly due to the amazing acting choices of uh, that woman who played all three witches, whose name I'm forgetting now. But We got wow. Catherine Hunter. Who right. is spectacular? What an yeah. absolute standout in this movie. The stand, yeah, the standout for sure. In a, in a film that has some of the best performances I've seen in a long time, the the sh- the shining beacon for sure was was her performance. It, it was incredible when she, you know, we're about to get to the start of the movie when she shows up with 
heard those opening witch lines and the the reveal of the toe uh and or the thumb in the toe or whatever it was um and this the way she was contorting her body like i don't know like she contortionist or something like and then but the acting that was happening while all of that was going on it was unsettling and incredible and i just want to show it to people like that alone is worth watching this movie, even though the rest of it's amazing. Like that scene is just so cool. The way they used the reflection to make yeah. the other witches come out. Oh my god, that was amazing! Yeah, I, I was wondering if I was like, are they just going to go with one witch who speaks of herself in sort of a plurality? Um, and then and then they kind of began that way, but then the reveal of the of the reflection, and then and then the reflection sort of. Be- comes into uh the the our world i guess uh the the you know and and actually starts interacting and then there's also this heavy implication that they are able to either transform into crows or are actually crows themselves and and i'm curious so we 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 read the the play but we i feel like we probably missed some stuff and and i was unclear if i if we had missed certain things or if this movie was making some choices about uh you know, uh, certain, I guess, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but there are certain implications about certain characters being behind certain things or taking certain actions that I didn't remember in the play, but maybe I just didn't pick up on it. So I'm going to be really curious to know, because uh, it sounds like you've seen multiple adaptations of this, uh, Michael, where this adaptation made some creative choices that are unique versus I've seen this kind of stuff in other places. I have some answers for you about that. Okay. As a <laughs> uh, teaser, I guess. <laughs> we've talked about uh, Joel Cohen before. Typically, we talk about the Coens because this is his first directorial debut as just Joel Cohen, okay. not uh, in partnership with his brother, Ethan. And it's not that this is going to be what it is forever. I guess Ethan wanted to take a break and Joel wanted to explore different films and uh, they may come back together at some point. They may continue to work separately for a long time. But um, I thought that was really notable. And then, of course, like we know the Coens from movies like Raising Arizona, Fargo, Big Lebowski, um, No Country for Old Men, which we covered on the podcast, Inside Lewin Davis. And typically, they are also the editors of their films. And that's that's the case here as well. There's another editor that worked with Joel Cohen, but he wrote it, directed it, and edited this, this uh, feature as well, which I always find to be just like the most precise vision possible from, from a director like this. And you know, you're seeing somebody who could basically make any film they ever wanted to, and he made it one of the m- most difficult potentially, like tackling Shakespeare, and he did it with such style and in a way that so I never much style. thought possible. Yeah, but uh, I think it's a good time to jump into summary here. I will read the first bit. Macbeth and Banquo, having led King Duncan's army to victory over the traitorous Thane of Cawdor, are approached by three witches on the battlefield. The witches hail Macbeth, will be made the Thane of Cawdor. He's already Thane of Glamis. They proclaim that he shall be king hereafter before stating that Banquo shall father a line of kings. King Duncan orders the Thane of Ross to execute Cawdor and reinvest the title upon Macbeth. Macbeth becomes alarmed after Duncan names his son Malcolm as the Prince of Cumberland, seeing the appointment as an encumbrance in his path to the throne. Macbeth writes to Lady Macbeth, informing her of the prophecies. When Duncan decides to spend a night at Macbeth's castle, Lady Macbeth convinces her husband to commit regicide. She drugs the king's servants, and a hesitant Macbeth carries out the killing. So, uh, Michael, I think I, I'm going to let you start. Uh, initial thoughts on the, the opening of this movie. 
Uh, well, as we've talked about, it's beautiful. The atmosphere is amazing. Um, so foul and fair a day I have not seen. When you read that on the page, it is... Uh, in fiction writing, we talk about the reader is 50%. Uh, it's so much more with Shakespeare because in in Shakespeare's time, in his setting, he was doing, you know, 50% on top of the writing he'd already done. Uh, when you, So when you read that on the page, uh, it took me at least three reads of the play to realize, oh, it's there's weather. This play has weather. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and so to see uh, Banquo and Macbeth coming out of the mist, going back into the mist, the witches appearing from the mist, it's unclear whether they're even really there physically. All that teaches me something about the play. And I would think if you'd never seen Macbeth or knew of it, uh, it's still incredibly effective in the way of the uh, expressionist film you're talking about. Is that the word? German expressionism, yeah, expressionist. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we, we start off, I think the first scene is is Ralph Innocent as the captain coming to sort of give his report about the battle to King Duncan. Uh, and and I, I just was struck with, yeah, like the I'm hearing these lines performed in a way that makes them make sense to me, in a, you know, in a way that just didn't quite when I read them. And it's like, okay, he's given a battle report, right? And he's talking about mm-hmm. what happened. He's talking about Macbeth and how he afforded himself on the on the battlefield. I, I love the line, unseamed him from knave to the chops, uh, or knave to chops, uh, and, and fixed his head upon the battlements. Um, so I'm like, okay, he's out there chopping people up. Um, he's he's this, this this fearsome warrior. Um, and and then we got Brandon Gleason, who's another actor I, I am, am, am a fan of. Um, but it's funny because I didn't quite, I was like, is that Brendan Gleeson? And I, I couldn't quite tell until he spoke. And then the moment he spoke, I'm like, okay, that's who it is. Because he has a, just such a distinct voice. Um, and, and I thought that was a great scene. And then you follow that up immediately with this just spectacular scene of the witch being being introduced, Catherine Hunter, um, who is just, I mean, it's it's got to be such a fun role to try and do because you could just, there's no level at which you can't go, right? Like, you could just go to a thousand percent, and, and it's perfect for them. They're these wild witches that are beyond knowing and 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 bizarre and off-putting, and uh, God, just so so much to, to grip you here early on. You're kind of seeing both sides of this. Um, and that's before we get even Denzel, even walks on, yep. on screen. So, while we're talking about Catherine Hunter, I do want to mention that, um, She's a pretty well-known theater actor and director as well. As an actor, she speaks a lot about how she plays a lot of male roles and how she loves that. She loves playing the male roles. She loves changing that over. And the way that she plays this witch is like so gritty and and like... Well, in the the play, they have like beards and stuff. So that that totally fits with the almost like... uh... Yeah, like a non-binary gender of these of these witches. Exactly, yeah. exactly. She's been described as this like virtuoso physical performer, physical theater. Um, I think it's really amazing to see a performer like this in a in a film of this magnitude, right? Like you, like we we have some of the greatest living actors in this film. Frances McDormand is one of my favorite actors. Period. In in a film with all of these massive stars performing Shakespeare in roles that they've performed before. Um, I know, I know Frances McDormand has performed on stage for Shakespeare productions. Denzel has done a few as well and also was in, um, what movie was that? It was like in the 90s. 
Is it As You Like It? It's one of the comedies. It is one of the comedies. I don't think it's As uh, You Like It. Directed by Kenneth Branagh. Much Ado About Nothing. That's what it is. Yep, that is it. I, I watched that recently and uh, found it brutal. And I found Denzel's performance in it informative about his performance in this because I think that his strategy in Shakespeare is to be transparent to like, he's like, I, I noticed it every time he's on screen with someone else in this movie, he's, he's feeding them opportunities. He's not hamming it up. Like whenever you are going to perform Shakespeare, I also have some, some very small drama experience. I performed a little Shakespeare once. Cool. That's you know, awesome. it's like, are you going to try and make the meaning, uh, comprehensible to the modern audience or are you going to do the beautiful words for what they are or are you going to try and find some way in between those two things and i feel like denzel is always stepping back he he says all the explosive words uh without taking the stage away from francis mcdormand uh it's amazing like i like him better as an actor now, having seen this movie, even though I've seen him in tons of things and was a fan already. I think a lot of people want to take Shakespeare and take these like extreme, uh, like boiled down dramatic moments to show off them, right? They want to show off their performing chops. But like you said, Denzel is doing the work of performing it with a lot of gravitas, but also not making it about him. I also noticed that he sort of still keeps a lot of his Denzel mannerisms. Like it's still Denzel yeah. performing uh, performing this this role of Macbeth. And I, I just found it to be so cool. And it felt so, like, real. It felt a lot more genuine to me oh, than if yeah. he had tried to be some sort of, like, fake... Uh, the Shakespeare... Like, I, I heard um, Joel Cohen approach the actors and tell them that he didn't want any stick-up-your-butt Shakespearean acting. And, like, I can tell that, like, he's, like, like, bring the genuine emotion and bring yourself to the role as well. The the moment that really exemplifies this to me that, that both of you are talking about, like, because I, I absolutely was, was taken with his performance because it was it was understated. And often he would choose to put the emphasis on lines that I didn't expect. And it was, like, the really big, memorable lines that I knew were coming. Often he would kind of fly through them with, like, an ease and it's like I think he kind of knows everyone knows these lines are coming, and he's going to give us a little a little something on something else. Um, so a lot of interesting choices being made there. But then you get he gets the opportunities to do what the greats can do so well, and that's act with his eyes. And uh, I thought the moment that stands out for me is when they're in the tent, and um, uh, 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 Malcolm is named right to be the prince. And the way he looks like he's looking at Malcolm and he's also looking at Banquo the same way. And that told me all I needed to know about Macbeth being jealous and being and being in like viewing them as a obstacle to be overcome because his his uh, avarice is just like is, is, is just inflamed. Right. Like he wants to be king so much now um, that, of course, it's it's tragic because he he's his own worst enemy. And that is uh, fully uh, displayed for me in this moment in a way where I had to kind of learn that by reading in the in the play. But like I, I knew that immediately. I was like, look at this guy and the way he's looking at these people like he's he's like, I want what you have. As far as the section is concerned, I also definitely feel like we should talk about in Macbeth, the play, the actual killing of of the king is off screen, right? Yes, we, so we noted I, that. Yeah a significant change is to show it mm -hmm. and showing it was 
very emotional. Like that, it <laughs> yeah. was super, super intimate. They were like, he was like on top of him, and it's so like. I mean, you got an actor like Denzel and 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 Brendan Gleeson. You got to give him a death scene, right? <laughs> like otherwise, you're like, yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> and it was brutal. It was it was everything you would want it to be. Like you know, I think Shakespeare leaves that scene off screen because the mystery of you know what we think happened. He showed it to us, and it was just as satisfying. It's it's hard to divine Shakespeare's choices and things like That's that. That's true. Yeah, who am I to say? What? Uh, <laughs> it's it's so far back in time and context, you know. Uh, but that's something I I love about seeing Shakespeare performed is he leaves all this room. You know, you get you get one line of of stage setting, and he asks you to fill in all this stuff. Yeah. We're asked by the mist of history to fill in setting and uh, how people move. And that's the director's choices and the actor's choices. And uh, yeah, I, I loved seeing that scene wordlessly because I know it's not in the play. Mm-hmm. This has been introduced to change the way we react to the characters. Uh, and it works beautifully. And uh, when we get to Ross, Ross has a lot of stuff like that. Uh, and is very mysterious in the play on the yeah, page. Yeah, I, I really want to talk about Ross. Uh, I, I, so, so before we get to Ross, uh, that murder scene, um, I thought it was really clever that they have one of the men who's who's been drugged mutter amen at at uh, Macbeth because you are you're introducing a moment that is hinted at perhaps, but isn't actually in the play. Um, it is talked about it happening before, but we're seeing it sort of happen after he's already killed the king, which my my understanding was before that all happened, he was saying his prayers with the with the guards and he was unable to say amen. So I wasn't clear, but then it kind of made this implication that maybe he had been witnessed, for one. And then two, you're able to add a line that still feels authentic to the play because it is a line that is referenced, right? So it was a really clever way of adding a scene that uh, still feels wholly Shakespeare. I don't know. I, I, I was like, giving him props for finding a way to do that because it's so hard to edit Shakespeare, right? Because it's it's this has been around for hundreds of years. How dare you edit Shakespeare in any way? And and yet you're finding little ways to do it. I think Macbeth is one of his hardest things to do that with. Uh, there's less of it, right? It's a very short Yeah, play. there's so much less. So like you watch a Hamlet, they can't put all of Hamlet in a movie, people would fall asleep, you know? Yeah. Uh, but Macbeth doesn't, you really have to work, as you guys were talking about in the previous episode, like, uh, I had to read through to figure out people's motivations, like, uh, d- does do Macbeth and Lady Macbeth, did they have a kid? Is that kid dead now? I have given suck. You know, it's yeah. there, yeah. Uh, but you have to extrapolate. And that is part of why I was reacting to this in, in in the context of Greek tragedy this time, I guess, uh, because he comes on stage full of... No, that's not true. He comes on stage, we get a scene where he's a weary warrior spattered in blood walking home, and then immediately in the next scene, he is infused with greed and aspirations to power. Uh, and there's like... The transition is all in the hands of the witches. Yeah, it really feels like they. It feels like they know that this is going to do this to him. It, it again, like I, I was, I was wondering, is is this a revenge uh, uh, from the witches? Have have they, in, in the in this opening conflict, somehow 
wronged the witches and, and come into their territory. And now the witches want to take revenge on Macbeth because giving him this prophecy is a curse that will haunt him to the end of his days, ruin his life and ruin everything he cares about. And it, it that, that seems to be one of the subtexts of this and the themes of this play is like foreknowledge in this sense can be the worst thing you can have because knowing that he is to be king is, is a death sentence for, for Macbeth. So the other thing you mentioned Ross and I, we got to talk about Ross. So in the, in the play, I didn't make much of Ross at all. And, and maybe I missed it, but I thought Ross was just a, a guy, you know, he has some cool lines. He's, he's somebody who works for, you know, for Macbeth, I guess, or he's, he's involved in, in Macbeth's dealings a lot. And then Ross in this movie is, is so creepy and sort of, uh, aloof. And then he's cousins with everybody and he's, he's, he's at every event. Um, I think he was even at some events that I'm not sure if he's at in the, in the play by the text. Um, and, and then the, there was some implication jumping ahead that maybe he was responsible for the death of Lady Macbeth. At least that's the way I read it. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the choices that were made with Ro- with Ross as a character. And have you seen anything like this in other productions of Macbeth, or is this unique to this movie? I have not seen anything like it, but according to that LA review, it has been done in some other prominent production. That doesn't that shouldn't surprise me. <laughs> uh, and, and that this is a question that like plagues uh, Shakespeare scholars. What what's Ross doing? Is he a stage manager character, uh, which Shakespeare uses a lot? Uh, I got this whole sidetrack about how and why and when Shakespeare breaks the fourth wall. It's all the time. Uh, and some of it is for political reasons that that we can gather by looking back at what his relationship with Queen Elizabeth and then James I was. You know, like, so at the end of The Tempest, Prospero breaks his staff and we're supposed to read that as I'm done I'm done performing for you people. And I I see that in Macbeth much more now having been a huge fan of King Lear and The Tempest. Uh later works coming back to this, I see him doing it in a more subtle way that I didn't recognize in the past. Making a political statement you're saying? Uh, a bunch of things I mean breaking the fourth wall. Okay, so he's talking to the audience. He's like wink wink, this is a play. We're taught we're communicating through a piece of fiction. Uh, there are ways that I can remind you that I'm here, that I, Shakespeare, have arranged this for a purpose. So in that uh, sense, Ross could almost be a Shakespearean stand, like Shakespeare stand-in, like he is right. kind of the playwright? That's really interesting. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I mean, that that figure is in a lot of his plays. Uh, Prospero is totally that. Uh, yeah. There's this bit in King Lear where I believe it's, Edward is that character's name, where he's leading the blinded Lear along the cliffs of Dover, and he pretends that he's fallen off. He like gets Lear to believe that he has fallen off the cliffs and survived. Uh, and it's basically Shakespeare being like, look what I can do. This is how plays work. I made you get caught up in this story. Mm. The way Joel Cohen keeps showing us Ross uh, just watching, yeah. I feel like Ross is stage managing, but he's also us. He's also the conscience, but but he's so creepy sometimes. Like to me, he almost felt menacing. Is that our desire to like see the violence play out too? If he if he is some sort of audience kind of stand in, like because he that's he, a fascinating he, question. He is really not like he that. is not like benevolent, right? Like he at times he it feels like he is 
a harbinger of doom. Like when I saw him arrive at Lady Macduff's house, I was like, oh, it's going to go down. You know, like, I don't know. Like, I guess I kind of knew it was going to, but he just felt scary to me. And, and, and his robes and his figure evoked almost like a Grim Reaper uh, image to me. Yeah, totally. With the the way his cuffs hang down, mm-hmm. it's so striking. Like just the costume choices make my eyes drawn to him in a way that cannot be unintentional, you know? It's <laughs> yeah. all so deliberate. He, there, is a, there is a lot of this in the film, but he got, I think, most of these scenes where the actor, the performer, is looking directly to camera. This is Alex Hassell, by the way. We should, we should probably name him because he did a great job. Yeah, I mean, incredible. And I'm not super familiar with his work either. Like, he, he, he is a, a familiar face. I, I'm not sure what he's been in, but I've seen him in something. Yeah. So uh, he kept having these moments where he'd like walk, you know, it's like a reaction shot. Like, for example, there's the moment when Banquo and and Fleance are like running away and he like he like lingers and waits. And there's this this shot of his face and him like thinking and you're trying to get into the mind of this character. And I love how it's so ambiguous until until the ending, at least. Yeah. Which, uh, man, we're, we're we're. we're going to have to talk about the ending because, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to know your take on that. But uh, maybe are we ready for maybe some more summary so we can get some more scenes here? Early next morning, Macduff, the Thane of Fife, discovers the body while Macbeth murders the servants to tie up loose ends. Fearing for his own life, Duncan's heir Malcolm flees to England and Macbeth assumes the throne as the new king. Uneasy over the prophecy concerning Banquo, Macbeth arranges to have him and his son Fleance murdered. Macbeth's assassins accompanied by Ross as the third murderer, kill Banquo. Ross then pursues Fleance through a field, and increasingly paranoid Macbeth becomes a feared tyrant. At a royal banquet, he hallucinates and begins raving at Banquo's ghost. Lady Macbeth has the guests dismissed before drugging him to calm him down. During his trance, Macbeth is again visited by the witches. They conjure a vision of Fleance, who tells him to beware of Macduff, that he shall be king until great Burnham Wood comes to Dunsinane Hill, and that he shall be harmed by no man born of a woman. Macbeth orders the whole Macduff household to be put to death, but Macduff himself survives, having earlier fled to England. I, I found the aesthetic of this film, uh, just because I don't think I've weighed in on that yet. Uh, it, it's so modern in a way that is like, it clashes with what I was expecting from this this uh, like middle age, you know, uh, tale to see like almost modern architecture and modern and, and stripped bare designs. And of course, it's it's stagey, but it's also uh, futuristic almost at times um, and, and kind of like an MC, MC Escher painting in, in the way that you kind of warp perspective. And, um, you know, that's all so fascinating. And this are all choices that make it seem brutal and um, evocative and and otherworldly because this is not a reality that exists right like this is not something that has ever occurred in our in our history and yet um it feels so uh perfect i don't know for for this for the subject matter to take a film that clearly is an homage to theater and is really evoking stage work in general, and then to use camera techniques that are so abnormal to that setting, right? So like you're getting these like bird's eye views, these things that you don't get in a play normally. Um, I felt to be really interesting. It's like it's like taking the medium and using it well, even though you're in the context of stages and and trying to sell it as even like the backdrops, like everything is all stage. And then, but then you're using the the camera techniques that you would you would assume to see in you know any modern day. Well, really, 
honestly super well crafted obviously filmmaking but a lot of those a lot of these like wides that they have symmetrical oh so much symmetry so much symmetry in this movie beautiful transitions lady macbeth and macbeth had their heads against each other in a wide and then this transition into like some sort of uh, like wide shot of like landscape uh that fits really well how i go into shakespeare uh, we were talking about this earlier you know the difference between the page and the stage in the film uh everyone has many of these lines in their head and uh I, I expect a Shakespearean actor to come to a speech like tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and be like, I have to say this in a different way than any actor has ever said it before. I'll just emphasize a few things differently to put my stamp on it, to shake the audience off of their expectations. Like you can't perform Shakespeare and not engage with the expectations because it's such well-trodden material. You know, he's the greatest English language writer. Everyone agrees, you know. So, uh, real quick, do you give any uh, credence to the theories that maybe Shakespeare wasn't uh, a real person or, or, or a front for several other people or anything like that? I like the version where he's Christopher Marlowe. I like the version where Christopher Marlowe, you know, throws him some stuff at the beginning before Christopher Marlowe dies. It's fun. Uh, I'm more or less in agreement with you, your opinion from your previous episode. I enjoy thinking about it occasionally. I'd rather not let it color my appreciation of the work because I like the work so much. Mm. Uh, and I have this version of Shakespeare in my head who's winking at me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want I want that to be real, and I don't really care if it's not. So <laughs> Interesting to think about. Sorry, I feel like I threw you off your point you were making. The surprise. I mean, I think that uh, the camera choices he's making emphasize and reflect that expectation that we're going to have our expectations challenged or we're going to be bored. Uh because we all have a version of that tomorrow and tomorrow speech in our heads. And if the actor doesn't break from it, uh, then it's almost like we weren't even listening to it. We, you know, we could have just been reading it on the page. So I think when, he, when the camera like comes down from above in the second bit with the witches, where there's this super weird beam that gets a ton of screen time and the heads are rising out of this vast pool, this pool, the color of lead. Uh, so good. It just like it throws us all off and we have no idea what to expect and it makes the material feel fresh. Another moment of like challenging expectations in the we're thinking that although this is like a stagey version of uh, of an adaptation, a film of of Macbeth, there is the moment where Banquo comes and gives like a monologue or soliloquy where and we spotlight him just as you would have as if it was on stage. And doing that is, again, calling attention to the fact that, like, yeah, you're watching a movie, but it's still a play. And I loved that moment where he came and delivered uh, the speech. It was like soon before the assassins came after them, I believe. And then this amazing transition where it's all darkness behind him. Like I said, that really rich black. And then he's speaking and then it sort of fades into the scene, I think, with him and Fleance, like leaving. I believe that's what it was. Was that in that room that has the circular open? Because there's kind of like a room with a circular opening. and It's where Macbeth later meets with the assassins. And it's such a fascinating set. Um, and because the light that comes through it is a spotlight that they can use to spotlight people at times. And I wasn't sure if that was because I think he was still at the manor, right? At that time. I could be wrong. But that might have been like a way to use like you're using the architecture of this room you've created to create a stage effect of a spotlight. Oh, so I wanted to, to, to revisit a little bit the 4-3 ratio. 
Um, and I want to press you on it a little bit more. So to me, I see 4.3, and my initial thought is, uh, you know, old tube televisions that couldn't give us the ratio that we would get in in theaters. Or if they did, it was, like, squished because, you know, you'd have to give these big black bars. Um, and so you, to me, it, it, for the longest time, 4.3 felt like, like a, a television because you would get television that would only be shot in that ratio or only displayed in that ratio. Um, but here it was like, okay, that is not what's happening because it, it, it felt like it really focused me in on performance, focused me in on what was being shown. Like my eyes couldn't wander in the way that I'm used to because we have so many like hugely wide ratios these days and, and expansive shots, which are beautiful. And you have like this massive uh, landscape or something where you can, your eye can wander from left to right, right to left, what have you. And you can look at all these little different details. And instead we have a stripped down set. We have a tight focus. We have no color. And you, there was only a few things to look at at any given time, but I ended up looking at them for longer um, and I'm curious if you, if you think like, is that is that the reason you do this? Is is there something I'm missing? Um, and did it have a similar effect on on both of you? I'm curious, Michael and James, uh, or or anything else like that. What did you think of the ratio? It definitely had the effect you're describing on me. And now that you articulate it, I think you're right that my expectations of four three have changed since my TV is no longer four three, <laughs> and it's been a while. Yeah, uh, and I've I hadn't thought about it until now, but so there were black bars on the other two sides of the screen as I watched this movie, and it's like emphasizing the claustrophobia and this. I, I have in my notes about how Macbeth is a railroad plot. Uh, I'm not sure if you are familiar with that term. It's like a criticism that is applied yeah. to fiction, yeah. meaning it's hard to believe that all these events fell into place this succinctly and this intensely. Like It just builds one thing on top of another. And, uh, you know, there are terms for the emotional effect of that. Uh, yeah, I think being on the rails is like the the main thing about that. It makes me think of it's like there's there is a rail and you're on it and you can't deviate. And that's not normally a good feeling to have in a, in a plot. Yeah. But it, I mean, it's it's, but it's, <laughs> it's like a yeah, it's a hallmark of this play. Yeah. And it feels faded. So maybe that ties into that theme. I'm going to get pretty nerdy with you guys about this aspect ratio stuff because it... it, it yeah, because I, I was going to say, this isn't the only movie doing this. There's other movies that are right. doing this, right? So first thing, it's not actually four by three. It's actually 137 by one, which is Academy aspect ratio. And it's like a, it's a 35 millimeter. It's a, it's a holdover from film, like a 35 millimeter film. My, my frame of reference for doing this is... This is the Coens calling back to things that they fell in love with when they fell in love with filmmaking. So I've heard them speak about the things that inspired them was a lot of and, and really that generation of filmmakers were really versed in films and just like had a, had a great understanding of films because some of the greatest films of all time were being put on television. They watched things like Citizen Kane. They watched all these amazing films that are like hallmarks of the industry. So they're one calling back to the history of film and two, um, I don't know how often you guys have seen like different uh, formats of, of projection, but basically IMAX 70 millimeter is like 
the golden standard of projection at this point. IMAX 70 millimeter is more of a box than you think. Okay. It's more square than you would think. It's not quite a square, but, uh, and when you, when you get that, a lot of filmmakers shoot like that. And so that you have the vertical room oh. because they're there, you get a lot more in the image here. So like people like Christopher Nolan does it. And it's a lot about the immersiveness of the so i think you were picking up on it luke but you were you were thinking it was because it was limiting the amount that you're seeing but it's actually expanding what you're seeing directly in front of you mm. and it actually gives you a more immersive picture maybe not peripherally but in terms of what you're looking at vertically and i think that whole thing is because some filmmakers feel that they want more because if you look at a widescreen image you're getting a like from top to bottom you're getting that range you know you're getting that 16 by 9 kind of thing not not in theaters but 16 by 9 is what people have on their phones and yeah. computers and TVs and everything and in terms of this film i think those large long looming shadows looming architecture you're getting a lot more of that vertical space um, when we're looking down into like you're talking about the hole that was like sort of cut out for the light we're looking down at that scene that feels like so much more elongated when you have it almost in a more of a square aspect ratio. So oh, that makes sense. That's my take on it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Wow. Didn't know that. Cool. So what 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 specific scenes have we missed here that we want to talk about? I know there's some 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 big stuff that we just went over, uh in, including the death of entire families. <laughs> um yeah, what 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 were your thoughts maybe on that? Let's let's go with uh with uh Lady Macduff and and her her child and and that harrowing scene when Ross shows up and then disappears before the violence really takes takes off, and uh, we see a child get chucked, which I thought was notable. Yeah. <laughs> thrown into that, the smoke. That may have been the hardest thing to get through for me in this movie was that kid getting lost. I mean, so it was it was it was so bad, but like. I, I laughed at it because it was so kind of over the top too. So like I don't know, like it, it's like I either had to be maybe like emotionally uh, haymakered with it, or or find it kind of humorous. And I ended up going into humorous. Maybe that says something about me. But um, because I I could just see the like padding underneath the mist as this kid goes ee into there. I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny looking, but it, it, it worked. Um, that was just my reaction to it. Uh, it's interesting that you had the opposite. It sounds like like it was harrowing for you. Well, yeah, I have a five-year-old, and that probably as I've heard things. is the case yeah. with other parents. Yeah. Like my ability to take kids in jeopardy has completely changed. Uh, so, like that scene, and also the bit where Banquo gives Fleance his sword and then takes it back, I was uh, bolted onto those very brief moments uh, because I'm a parent, I think. But uh, also that, like, I think they're both pretty cool instances of. Uh, Directing choices, acting choices, staging choices. Uh, on the page, I thought that scene with son of Macduff and Lady Macduff uh, made out the son to be wittier and snarkier than his years. Uh, he certainly seemed older on the page than he did in the film. Uh, and when I was reading it, I read what that kid says to his mom as this is Shakespeare talking out of the talking in the voice of this character to us. Uh, and I did not get that from the film because he's younger and he's cute. Uh, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm so stealing myself to watch him die yeah. I guess, is another, I thing. feel like a monster now. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, I can understand from a technical like uh, perspective why you thought it looked funny. You know what I mean? Because it was that sort of callback to like early effects, like special effects that you're going to do when you kill somebody on screen or whatever. It's just like a, a, a foggy room. Like it's literally just like a, a foggy shot with nothing below. You can't see anything. And then you see a child. Fall it was just so it. unexpected, too. And when, une- right. when really unexpected things happen to me, sometimes my reaction is to laugh. I thought he was going to stab him or something. And instead he he throws him, which I don't know. It just caught me off guard. And this is off screen, off stage really in in the play as well right like this, actually wait no i think they kill the kid on on stage right am i wrong about die. that i thought that maybe the the mom dies and the kid I don't, I don't remember i know they both die but i can't remember how it's described i thought it was sort of off. i think the kid gets to say something like mother i am slain did he say that oh, in the really? film version i don't think so i don't I mean so, he either. would have been yelling yeah. it as he sailed through the air <laughs> luke would have laughed even <laughs> harder made laugh even harder yeah <laughs> No, yeah, yeah. I, I did think that the scene was very emotional, though, because of the buildup with Lady Macduff. And then it hits so much harder when Macduff learns about the death of his family later. Like it hits hard because we got to, we saw it and you saw the cuteness of the kid. We saw, you know, how, how great they were together. I definitely think we have to talk about the trance because we get some special effects and some other really interesting and cool things. And then within the context of this this story, like seeing Macbeth and how he reacts to it and the the way that the the visions come about because in this vision he meets again with the witches and yeah. this time they they summon forth they they do their their uh what's the toil double double toil and trouble there it is fire burn and cauldron bubble that's the one yeah uh and and and, and uh man i was i was waiting for the scene right like it's such an iconic maybe i don't know that was like the one scene i knew from macbeth without even having read it so i just heard a reference so many times and I'm, I'm waiting for this to happen and yeah filling a room and having it be so surreal and it's like maybe he's dreaming or or hallucinating and then the room itself just keeps changing and they do this several times in, in the movie where all of a sudden I, I, like the roof is open and you have these beams and uh, i was unclear whether or not that was normally the case in this room um Really fascinating choices being made, and then the the way it plays out with uh, flayance rising from the liquid, that's different in the uh, by the text of the of the play, right? Like the the visions are slightly changed here, and the vision was said to be the like master, which there's like this other he- Hecate or whatever in the in the play that right. we don't see. I don't think we see it all here. No. Um, and the implication is that maybe Fleance, who's coming out of the liquid, is... Yeah, I mean, from a fantasy writer perspective, is it that they are priests, like in D&D, where they summon their deity, and the deity does the magic on their behalf? Yeah. Well, that sort of makes it less fun, because I want to give those witches agency. Yeah, it makes the, agents, it makes the witches cooler. Like It makes them the, the, the power here, which I do like. I do appreciate that change. And, and again, you're you're editing a little bit here, right? And it's very difficult to do, but you're finding ways to change change the supernatural element ever so slightly by doing that. Changing it slightly to fit your vision yeah. and yet not changing it to the point that you or I are reacting viscerally to it. Like, oh, that's such a big change that, that I can't get on board with it. You know, I think it's, it's, it's very smart changes. Yeah, very cool scene. All right, so I'm going to finish out the summary with this section here. A guilt-ridden Lady Macbeth begins sleepwalking and gradually descends into madness. Ross secretly visits England and informs Macduff of his family's demise. A grief-stricken Macduff vows revenge, while Malcolm raises an army with English help. 
The troops cut down branches from Burnham Wood, using them as camouflage, and march on Macbeth's castle at Dunsinane, fulfilling one of the prophecies. Lady Macbeth dies, plunging Macbeth into further despair. Still convinced of his invincibility, he is ultimately challenged by Macduff to a duel. Macduff declares he is not born of a woman, but instead untimely ripped. Macbeth initially refuses, but ultimately accepts Macduff's challenge. Macduff bests Macbeth and beheads him, fulfilling the final prophecy. Malcolm is crowned the new king of Scotland. Meanwhile, Fleance is revealed to be alive and Ross spirits him away from Scotland. A flock of crows emerges in the foreground, clearing the path and to signal the fulfillment of the witch's prophecy regarding Banquo's progeny. Can we talk about the death of Lady Macbeth? Yeah. Important moment. <laughs> uh, because you said you got the impression that Ross was responsible. He might have And been. I did not. Interesting, yeah. Because, because I had, again, I had been seeing him as this grim reaper figure who was showing up at all these moments where people were dying. And he wasn't present to my memory in the, in the play when I read it. Yet they had him walk up and look up at Lady Macbeth, who's at the top of the stairs, alive. And he looks at her and has this moment of like, maybe if she were to die, that would spell the end to this. Because at this point, I had, I had, it sounded like he was on the side of the, of Malcolm, right? And so, could he have pushed? Was my thought. Um, it is ambiguous, clearly, because we don't see it happen, uh, and it's so unclear whether or not he did. Um, but the character, as the Ross, as portrayed in this movie, I felt capable of it. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of that is the filmmaker trying to question his motives, like have the audience question his motives, right? Like, so I don't know, because I didn't, I didn't necessarily read it either as him doing it. I just thought that he saw something. Maybe he saw like. Uh, her in turmoil or whatever and decided to do nothing because he keeps showing up in these key scenes and deciding to do something or deciding to do nothing mm. like there's the the scene that we kind of glossed over where he follows into the field after Fleance and like stands over him yeah you're right yeah which is another what was like, you don't what know was what the, happened yeah, yeah. there no like, it's revealed later that maybe he like kind of secreted him off but I was unclear on what what exactly was happening there but I think it's just on the part of the filmmaker trying to keep that that mystery alive for that character. I don't. I, I didn't really. So so even if he did see her in peril and chose to do nothing, it's kind of a Walter White moment of murder. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. well, at the end of this story, we see that it seems like although he may have been working for Macbeth, he didn't actually kill anybody that Macbeth asked him to. Did he? I, I, I don't. He, I think he just showed up in those situations, didn't never actually killing anyone. And then it seemed like at the end by taking Fleance away seemed like ultimately he was more invested in keeping Fleance safe. And he felt like that was the right way for Scotland to go rather than Macbeth. So he, I think he saw the error of Macbeth earlier on. Or I feel like his motives are more strange than that. Yeah. It might be more tied to that role he's playing as like a fourth wall breaking character. Like uh, Michael was talking about, like, it, it, like we're all not able to do anything, but we're just watching it happen. I don't know. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we were meant to feel responsible in a sort of like uh, Schrodinger's box kind of way. You're watching this, uh, so you must own these sins. Uh, that's kind of what I get from, you know, Ross showing up right before Macduff's entire family is murdered, then showing up 
first, he can't bear to tell Macduff. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, your family's fine. Actually, they've all been murdered. Yeah, what a, what a twist. What, uh, that, that's just an interesting way to, to break the news. Because of what you guys said about the side characters in this play not being very well developed in your previous podcast episode, Par- partly because of that, partly because Ross is just s- such a weird and fascinating character in the movie, uh, I went back and looked at every single appearance and everything he says in the text. Like I went through it a mm. couple of times trying to figure out where is Ross right now? Where is he supposed to be? And where is Joel Cohen deciding he's been? And in some cases, I could not figure it out. How does he get from Dunsinane to Fife and back in the course of two scenes? Agreed. Uh, I don't... I don't know how far apart these places are. Yeah. No, he's but, like in England at um, one point too. I think. I, I think he's. I think he's right. magic, right? Like I, this. This character is 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 somehow otherworldly. Is is my read on it? Like he because he he is he's in multiple scenes strung together at different locations, back to back, and there's no there's like no way because I think it, it transitions from him being at there to. I mean, it's like okay, maybe he could have traveled in between scenes, but like the language of a film tends to tell me that he shouldn't be able to be in the next scene because he's somewhere else. And yet he was. Can we talk about the fact that he leaves Fleance with the old man who is also the same actor that plays the witches? Right. So right. is there oh, some right. sort of like service being performed for the witches? Yeah, I think so. So this is all going to get to the ending, uh, which, which I think is, is, is the, another final moment of ambiguity where we're, we're sort of trying to figure out because it is, it is, it is Ross who's on the horse and mm-hmm. with Fleance and with uh, the witch as old man, right? We see them interact and then he rides off and then he bursts into crows. Um, and I, that made me wonder, that made me question everything. And again, I, I was getting the sense that maybe he was somehow otherworldly, and and I started wondering, is is there any chance that he's a witch? That he's one of the witches in 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 some sort of guise? It's definitely possible. Yeah, I don't know. I was really curious. Actually, that was like one of the main things I wanted to talk to you two about, and like see what your read is with that, because I felt like the movie was trying to tell me something when it comes to Ross, and I'm just not sure what it is. I I do not read him as a witch or supernatural. But I'm so very inclined to the breaking the fourth wall thing. I just get a lot of fun and inspiration out of that. I feel like engaging with those ideas was instrumental in my becoming the kind of writer I am. Uh, but okay, so apparently this is a, a point of contention among people who direct Macbeth. Uh, what do you do about the third murderer? Yeah, I had that. I had that question reading it. It felt like right. a, a dangling thread. Like, who is this? Why is this important that a third murderer had shown up? Unclear. Yeah. There's the delightful interpretation that you guys introduced me to, which I don't think I'd ever heard before, about maybe this is an incomplete play and there were other bits of it. The first folio was lost. I forget all the details of that. Yeah. Or as a person who wants to reify Shakespeare uh, and make him into something he couldn't possibly have been, I, I want him to have left us that just so that hundreds of directors and actors <laughs> through the generations would be like, what do we do about this? What does it mean? Uh, and, and apparently Cohen is engaging with, with a, some sort of tradition of what do we do with that third murderer? Do we make him Ross? Do we make it Macbeth? Uh, apparently they, other directors have chosen to make it 
Ross. Uh, huh. And so me reading through his lines a bunch of times all consecutively, I'm looking for the character transition because in the early scenes, Ross seems like he's supportive of Macbeth, yeah. like you're a hero, you saved the day. And then I was trying to find in what scene did I think he had changed his mind. And surprise, it's the Banquo's ghost scene. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he also is, he is, he is the figure who is looming over the sons of King Duncan when they are deciding to flee, right? That's Ross up there. He's in this kind of balcony area and he's just watching them. And again, like there's something, even, even if he is only, uh, even if it is just the fact that he's this fourth wall breaking character in fiction to be a fourth wall breaking character makes you kind of magical because you are aware you are in fiction. Like your your Deadpool <laughs> a little bit right like so that right. is itself oh, yeah, a power yeah, totally and so e- even that alone makes him kind of magical. I I gotta say I love the idea of of Shakespeare like trying to challenge the generations to come <laughs> like like keeping us sharp you know yeah keeping us on our toes <laughs> making us think outside the box yeah you uh, figure it he, out <laughs> he wrote that into his play <laughs> leave a little white space for him to play with they'll they'll really wonder on that one. <laughs> When Ross meets with this old man in the cottage, I was re- I did not notice this. This is something I've found in my reading. Uh, the character sings the first verse of a song that ends with the line, for the rain, it raineth every day. And supposedly the lines are not from Macbeth, but from an earlier Shakespeare comedy, Twelfth Night. Oh, okay. And I thought that was very interesting to think about the reinterpretation and like, it's like how- Introducing lines specific- from another play. Is, that's, a bold, that's a bold choice how specific he was to bring in the actual dialogue and bring in all of this from Macbeth and then to have that in there. It's so, it's very interesting. I need to, I want to like hear the song again to, to understand the whole context of like, why drag that in and drop it into Macbeth? Is it possible that this was a popular bar song? Mm. <laughs> Reigns of Castamere? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The popular bar song, Reigns of Castamere. Right. Wedding song. Famous wedding song. <laughs> when you start busting that one out, I think everyone gets a little nervous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that, that, yeah, that's an interesting moment, but I, I do not have any theories to give you, James, as to as to why, other than it is cool to, like, if you're going to bring in lines from somewhere else, you're not going to write them yourself, so you got to lift them from another Shakespeare play, because if you try and write some Shakespearean lines, it's going to be obvious and everyone's going to you know, be upset. So uh, this was, that's a clever way to introduce something new because you're like, oh, well, at least the same guy wrote it in theory. Um, So a a moment I got to talk about, and it's one of the the things that has stuck with me most from watching this movie is uh, Macbeth, uh, Lady Macbeth has died, which I don't, do we give her enough credit yet for, for, for her, you know, out damned spot and her sleepwalking scene? Maybe we should focus on that for a moment before I get to what I was going to talk about. She is great in that. Um, and we have the doctor and the, the servant sort of watching and commenting. And then there's even this moment where at the very end, she turns and looks at them and says to bed, I think. Um, and it, I got this like implication, like she knew she was being observed and I thought that was an interesting twist on the scene that I, I wasn't sure if that was in the text of the play again, because that gives her that kind of like gives her a little more agency here than than uh, than I had previously thought. I don't know. What, what was your take on that on that moment? Any uh, opportunity to complicate like that gets me excited. Yeah. Francis McDormand's overall effect on me in this movie is informed by Fargo. <laughs> uh Wow. And I and I, I wince a little bit about it because I I want to assign more credit to Francis McDormand as opposed to just the casting choice. But uh, 
the character in Fargo is iconic and and for me in particular, I mean, it's a touchstone, you know, and uh, there's something in common there in the fact that she is a woman in a man's role uh, surrounded by this ultraviolence who keeps an even keel to an extent. Uh, But you, you see the craziness in her acting choices in Fargo. And uh, I really felt like I was being called back to that uh, when she was doing the out damned spot uh, because she's she's you know asked the devil or whoever to unsex her uh, and she's relentless uh, she does not have a moment of empathy for the first three acts and then now she's fragile yeah it's all of, it's to me it was clearly in this film at least the the killing of Macduff's family is what seems to be the straw that breaks her. Up until right. then, she was fine with any amount of blood. And then in, in this film, at least, it was clear to me that that's the moment that she is no longer on board um, and, and truly pushes her over the edge. And she realizes, I think, what she's done to her husband because our read of the of the play was like, she continued to drive him towards this and to push him and to, to call his masculinity into question when he had doubts. Um, and to use everything she could to sort of push her husband into murder. And then now she's like, I don't know about this. And and I felt like it was kind of abrupt in the, in the play when she changed. But I guess I followed it a little better in the in the film. Yeah, I, I did mention before that she's like one of my favorite actors. But this this performance, I love the way that that Denzel and Francis McDormand play off each other in that role because it is so contentious at times and then they're like on the same side and the way that uh she just approaches the raw she's just incredible the the out damp spot and then the 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 like we talked about the the scene with her on the stairs and speaking with the the doctor and everything like just amazing uh, stuff really good you make me want to correct myself actually because I, I said that she's without mercy or sympathy for those first three acts but it is plain to me that she loves Macbeth and that they have an actual relationship and that's that's all Francis McDormand I mean and and it's uh Denzel being quiet and letting her do the work uh giving her room to work like I've I've not believed a loving supportive relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth ever before in a production of this I've seen wow that's high praise yeah I think they I think they really pulled it together and and had like a I think this movie overall and within the zeitgeist of like the, in the history of Macbeth is going to be a touchstone. I think the witch scene is something that people will point to that will be in people's minds as they read the story, I think going forward, uh, if you've seen the film. And then I think this, yeah, I think the relationship between these two, it, it made more sense to me in this film than it did in the original play reading it on the page. So important to nail. I want to introduce another scene that I think is going to, at least for me, is is going to stick with me and is going to be an iconic. And that is uh, everything has fallen apart for Macbeth. His wife is dead. His, his, his castle is being sieged. And he sort of just wanders into his throne room after throwing open the window and letting all these leaves in. And he collapses in his throne. And we get uh, we get this character show up uh, to to fight him. His name? What's the name of the character here? Seward. Seward. Right. Uh, Seward right. shows up and sees him, and he they have this exchange where he's like, 
what's your name? Uh, he's like, I know your name. And then, uh, that, you know, these the, say your name and he says, uh, thou be afraid to hear it. And like the way he described it was so badass. <laughs> like it was like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just love Denzel in this moment. Um, and it felt iconic to me. The idea of like someone's arrived to call you out and you are, you are at your blackest moment yet, you know, like you, you are, this person is not a threat to me. And you are the, you have like, you have accepted that you are basically the devil and he's calling you the devil. And you're like, you don't have the bravery to stand up to the devil. And I know that. And just the way he, he, he delivers these lines to this guy, um, struck me as just like, I don't know, absolutely incredible. And then, and then, then they fight in a way that is so interesting because he has no weapon. He fights him barehanded. He gets his face cut and then he throws the blood in his eyes, gives him this powerful shove, like very cool um, uh, uh, sort of choreography for the fight itself. And I kept thinking about Elden Ring, (laughs) a video game I've been (laughs) playing recently, and how in that game and other Souls games, you wander into a forgotten throne room and there's a slumped figure of a king waiting for you who knows how long it's been there and you wake him up and when you wake him up they tend to be like you don't know what the fuck you just got into and then they kill mm-hmm. you is usually what happens <laughs> and yep. i felt like that's exactly what happened to seward here <laughs> he was not ready for for the fire he was about to, to he's about to meet <laughs> um so I love uh, yeah one. i love i love that moment <laughs> That'll be a good uh, <laughs> a touchstone for for everybody. Like I, I don't know that uh, Macbeth has been compared to <laughs> Elden, Elden Ring, Ring right? Until yeah, now, but <laughs> now it has. We checked that box. Uh, another thing I noticed in that in that fight is the the walls like go, go away, and we see the forest as he's like fighting. And and I don't know, that's really interesting, right? Like uh, the surreal moment of they're like fighting in a forest while in the throne room. Yeah, I hadn't given thought to the forest appearing, but I want to <laughs> because. Uh, the Burnham Wood bit is something that like filled me with the mystery of this play when I first read it long, long ago. Uh, you know, they've they offer me a an actual fantastical moment. And it, was it you guys who said that uh, Tolkien was influenced yeah. by this in creating the Ents? Right. So that's all. This is my wheelhouse. <laughs> Talking trees, walking trees that take revenge yeah, on people. Yeah, that's why I made you, know. you from Burnham Wood uh, in your intro. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> thank you. I, I did catch that, and I appreciate it. Uh, so, yeah, like, what what does the wood mean? What does its appearance in that scene mean? Uh, its wildness, which I think is, you know, the inevitability of death. Is it associated with the witches in some way? Yeah. Its fate. You know what it also reminds me a little bit, and I don't know if this was deliberate or not, but like in samurai films, you often get these showdowns and these duels in, in, in under under uh, the sort of rose blossoms falling from a tree, right? Like that's a very iconic shot. And you had these, these leaves were swirling through the entire battle. Um, and I don't know if that was some sort of deliberate choice or that's just like uh, some parallel things going on there. Well, I mean, from Kurosawa is like the master of motivated motion in the scene and having something like that, having like cherry blossoms fall through the through the scene or, you know, uh, rain, something like that. Like he, these are elements that he loved to put in, in really dramatic scenes because giving that extra uh, movement in a scene where maybe other things are still like um, makes for really striking visuals. Yeah. 
Do I recall that Kurosawa did an interpretation of Macbeth that, you know, wasn't called that? He like yeah. the throne of blood. Yeah. Told it. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Uh, we, Which is another thing I guess we'll cover for a bonus episode. No, or we got to cover Kurosawa on the main on the main feed. Oh, at we some will, point. but I just mean like, so how do we cover Throne of Blood as Macbeth? Because it, is Macbeth. it Macbeth? It's, I believe so. Okay, I don't know. We'll look, we'll look into it. I thought there was maybe another one. Um, yeah, but then we get um, after after Denzel does his like badass. Like, what is that movie he was in, Equalizer or something? I was like, okay, here's Equalizer Denzel, just, like, taking this guy apart. Oh, because when he finishes him, he, like, he, he like, does this kind of spin. He takes his sword away from him, stabs him in the back of the neck with his own dagger, and, like, walks out without even looking at him. I was like, this is such a, like, badass action moment for this movie that hasn't had any of this up until now. Uh, it was, you know, really fascinating that they, that they threw it in there, but it was very cool. Um and yeah, so then they walks out and he ends up doing, doing having his final duel with uh with with McDuff. And to me, this this duel wasn't as interesting as the one we I had just seen. However, the the shots were very cool. It was kind of like it was, they were in this narrow battlement and it drew out and it looked very sort of surreal and brutal. And they had this back and forth sword fight that was good. I mean, the, the thing that most sticks with me about the fight between Macduff and Macbeth is that they do it on that very narrow battlement yeah. uh, where there's not a lot of room to maneuver uh, from a, I think too much about sword fighting perspective. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And it signals the inevitability of it. It signals that this is fate. Macbeth is going to You're die. on a rail. Yeah. Bringing it back to that to that railroad metaphor. Right. Macduff is like one of the only, if not the only characters in this entire play who's just kind of a good guy. Right? Like, uh, there's not many. I guess Banquo's pretty solidly good. And interestingly, he's also one of the slightly less interesting characters to me. Like, maybe it's the the complexity of all of these, like, characters who are who are haunted and 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 uh you know tragic really lends something to to them being interesting in a way that Macduff isn't in this I don't know like he's just kind of a good guy who's got some vengeance that he wants he wants to have well you think even like like the king early on Duncan is like if we're to believe what's been said about him is like this great yeah. guy, great king, cares for everyone, dies. Yeah. Be- maybe even because of that, you <laughs> yeah. know, maybe because he's too trusting or whatever. Um, and and yeah, I think in this Shakespeare just wanted to explore like more great characters, characters who were like legit evil. And, and ultimately those characters are going to be slightly more interesting, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I am interested always in the scene between Malcolm and Macduff. Mm where Malcolm comes up and is like, hey, I am the worst. Would you like me to be king? And Macduff is like, you can't be that bad. You can't be that bad. If you're really that bad, then I'm going to kill you. Was and that in this Malcolm movie? Was like, I was just was kidding. Was that in this movie? Or, did they, uh, did they, or was it, it truncated in some way? Because I'm not... It was, I think it may have been truncated. Yeah, because yeah. I don't remember that uh, moment, which is interesting because that, that really stood out to me in the play as, as an important little little exchange. Yeah. Well, I, th- I that was it stood out to me in the play because I had to stare at it and stare at it to figure out what Malcolm was doing. Uh, I must have skipped past it all the other times. I must have been like, I do not understand what's happening here. And this time I finally figured it out. Uh, and so that's the thing about even the best Shakespearean actor. Uh, it still goes by really fast. Yeah. So the work that they have to do is is giving you the body language and the tone to convey the meaning 
because you're not going to pick up the subtleties, uh, at least in some cases. Like, you can pick up your tomorrow and tomorrow speech, uh, the Porter's jokes, like I can get those at speed. But to read on the page, I have to read it over mm-hmm. and over. Uh, anyway, getting back to Macduff. So wait, wait, wait. So what's, what's, what, uh, what is he doing here then? You said you, you got it eventually. Uh, right, I got it. Um, my interpretation is that Malcolm is so devastated on behalf of Scotland that there is nobody worth anything, uh, including himself. Like, I don't think he loved his dad. I don't think he was super happy to be prince and probably wanted the throne himself. Uh, and so I think he comes to Macduff being like, uh, I bet you're probably just as much of a jerk as all these other bloodthirsty people who are responsible for my country. And so he's saying, he's like testing him in a really screwed up way that's very self-deprecating. If you make me king, I'm going to rape all the women. Uh, he's He's just trying to get a rise yeah. out of him. And then when the rise he gets is is the like best possible, you know, Macduff, I, I would kill you rather than let you be king if that's really who you are. Then he's like, oh, I'm happy. Uh, this, this, I feel like, is something that Shakespeare does uh, that doesn't hold up as well um, to a modern audience. It's more, it feels more staged. Uh, I don't know how, if you've seen that Much Ado About Nothing, but um, the like young uh, heartthrob character who gets mad at Hero and uh, for for basically no reason he he has a very similar transition right at the end and there's so much riding on it in that play where they have to tell him no actually you completely misunderstood Hero was not having sex with her uh, doorman uh, it's all fine you can get married and and he turns on a dime and that uh, scene with Malcolm reminds me of that in the same kind of way. It's like, I've, I've made my rhetorical point. Uh, look at how cleverly I can wield language. Um, and somehow that I have to think that must've hit harder to a Shakespearean audience than it does with us. It just feels glib. Mm. One last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up, we have Ross walk up to Malcolm at the end, Denzel head in hand, uh, Macbeth head in hand and a crown in the other. And he crowns the new king. And he's, he's like gripping that neck too. Like to me, again, Ross is a creepy character. Um, and he gives him that that crown. He puts it on. And he's got this look that's very like far off. And like to me, it was like he's believing his own greatness. And I, and, and to me, that was saying something about the, the corrupting power of the crown. And the corrupting power of, of, of being a king maybe. And... Maybe it's why kings aren't such a good idea. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I think that there, there was something being said there. Like as much as, uh, as Malcolm had seemed like a pretty good dude throughout, I didn't get the sense when he put that crown on that he was going to be a great king. I don't know. Anybody else read it that way? The witches have told us in no uncertain terms that it's Banquo's issue oh, that's a good point. who's going yeah. to remain on the throne for generation after generation. True. And I went and looked this up and you guys were totally right he's he's writing that to uh to fluff up James the 1st ego uh cuz he's descended from the not the stuarts the other family that produced many english kings maybe it is the stuarts anyway uh 
So I think I think we all are meant to know that Malcolm's going to be king briefly and sort of ineffectually, and then he's going to be replaced by Fleance's issue. And historically, there were many, many generations between those two things. And at the time, James I believed that Fleance was his ancestor. Uh, and then in like the 1700s, that was revealed by scholars not to be the case, but he was already dead mm. by then, so who cares? And like, does the play care? No. The play's just interested in... Uh, showing us that fate has been orchestrated, mm. right? The the burst of crows and the last thing we see is Ross and that kid. Uh, so yeah, I totally don't think you're imagining it. I think we're meant to think Malcolm played his role and now he can be shuffled off stage. <laughs> and here's where you should focus. Look at the crows. Okay. Uh, so at, at, we're going to have to leave it here, but uh, we do have one last thing we like to do, and that is to make our picks for what was the better version. Um, admittedly, it, 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 it's always a difficult decision and it always feels a little silly, but it feels really silly here um, to, to try and, and choose between one of the greatest plays of all time written by one of the greatest playwright or the greatest playwright of all time and, and a movie, no matter how great it is, it is still a movie by a director, right? Like how can it possibly stand up? However, it's a great movie by a great director so let's go through the let's go through the exercise um, just to hear what we all how we all thought about it when we were coming up with our choices. We'll have you go last, Michael. Um, do you want to start, James? Yeah. So I think Shakespeare is just like overrated. <laughs> <laughs> no. So how can you possibly touch something as untouchable as Shakespeare and Macbeth? Um, I think the reason in this case I'm going to take the film is because it's such a high level of filmmaking that no one else is doing you know, very few at least. It gave me a better understanding of the story, which I didn't expect to get from from an adaptation. And it it was so striking. And the the film nerd in me, the his, the history buff, the film history buff, was just like really into the fact that he was like encapsulating all this history within an, a Macbeth adaptation. And the performances are super memorable. Mm. And I think that this this story this will continue to live on in my mind as as Macbeth. And then if, when I revisit Macbeth, eventually I'll be thinking of these, these actors and their performances and, and how that affects my read on Shakespeare going forward. So taking the film. Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is, uh, I already kind of talked about how impossible this kind of is. Um, and I think that's because the, the nature of plays is they are meant to be seen. They are meant to be, uh, viewed in a way that a novel is not right. A novel is meant to be held and read by a sole individual and sort of experienced in the mind in a way that you are viewing something by design in a play. So it lends itself towards an adaptation like this really, really well. Um, timeless, classic. Uh, yet you have this film that nails it, that is coming at the end of a long line of adaptations and somehow managing to do something great and different and noteworthy it, it, when you are going to, when you know you're going to be compared to every other adaptation there is. Um, so that, that, that is a, 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 only could be attempted, I think, by a director who is at the point in their career that Joel Cohen is with the chops that he has, with the, the confidence that he has. Um, so I'm going to give it to the movie as well because I just loved watching it so much and it brought the material to life for me um, with the full caveat of the material 
is intended to be viewed in such a way. So, of course, like, of course, like Shakespeare didn't write the play for me to pick it up and read it. So, of course, this is going to be the experience that that works. And these two things go in in our, you know, cannot be really extracted from each other. But in doing it, yeah, I guess I'll give it to the movie. (laughs) This is a very tough call for me. Um, But I'm going to give it to Shakespeare, despite... uh, But I have a lot of praise for Cohen in leading to this. I mean, uh, it is an amazing version of this play. Uh, It may be the best, you know, uh, so vivid. um, Never seen The Witches done like that. Never seen the relationship between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth be as human as it is here. Um, But the overall effect that all that amazing work has had on me is to send me back to the material in a way that I missed. Like I haven't read Shakespeare in earnest like this in a long time. And I give Joel Cohen the credit and everyone involved in this production, you know, it's not just him uh, in like getting me excited about it again. Like I'm sitting here intriguing over what Shakespeare actually intended for that third murderer and what is Ross's purpose, you know, and what do these monologues mean that I haven't obsessed about before Uh, And that's great. Like, I enjoy that so much, and I used to enjoy it so much, and I'm so grateful that this movie was able to do that for me, like this previous Macbeth, the one with Fassbender, failed utterly to do. (laughs) It's not like I haven't been watching Shakespeare. I've uh, I've seen Shakespeare in the park the last couple years. I saw Richard III. I saw The Tempest, Midsummer Night's Dream, and none of them sent me back to the material like this. So still, though, I have to end with the fact that it is the material that gives me all this joy and uh, excuses to spend time pondering the ineffable, unanswerable questions of lost history. And so, yeah, I'm giving the credit to Shakespeare. Well said, and I think appropriate, right? Honestly, somebody needs to give credit to Shakespeare. That guy doesn't get enough credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that's also a great transition to say thank you for coming on the podcast and joining us to talk about this material. Um, it was it was a great opportunity for me to revisit Shakespeare really for the first time since high school. Um, what what a, what a delight this has been and uh, what a, what an awesome movie to end on. Um, if our listeners wanted to check out Reckoning or your writing and your writing, uh, where can they follow you online? That kind of stuff. Uh, Reckoning is at reckoning.press. I got one of those cool new dot press suffixes. <laughs> uh, it's easy to say and remember. And uh, best find me on Twitter at Michael J. DeLuca. Uh, Reckoning has, I think this is the sixth issue, right? So you've done five previously. Um, all of them include uh, short fiction, poetry, essays, um, art, Some artwork. Art. Um, and yeah, they're all really cool. And I think people should check them out. Um, and if you want to know when my story comes out, you can follow me because I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I, delighted to, uh, it's, it, it, I'm so, so honored and, and humbled to be in uh, such an awesome magazine. It's very, very cool. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Michael, for coming on. People should follow you online. I'll put links to all of that in the show notes so you can look down there and find them. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for joining us. This was so much fun. Thank you very much for having me. This has been a great opportunity. Really appreciate all the cool ideas you have given me. So before we wrap this thing up for for real, I did want to say we have a Patreon poll right now up. And if you wanted to join our Patreon, which we would greatly appreciate, or if you're already a patron, 
um, check it out and you can vote on our next project. Um, you only have a few days when this comes out. We're going to be we're going to be wrapping the poll um, and it, we will be uh, deciding what our very next project is going to be. Go ahead and cast your vote on it and you can help us decide what will be next. And we greatly appreciate it. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And if you enjoyed this episode, and you enjoyed us talking about Shakespeare. First off, let us know. Um, and one way to let us know is also to leave us a rating and review on whatever app you're on, which you can do now. Uh, you can leave ratings now on Spotify. So we'd love to get some more on there. If you are on YouTube, like the video, leave us a comment, and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, so yeah, we don't actually know what our next project's gonna be yet. We'll be finding out in the coming days. And until next time, keep adapting.